Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this episode, we're going to be continuing with the alphabet of boating, which we started a couple of episodes back with A is for anchoring. Now, I got some wonderful options sent to me. Um, B could be for beam, as in the beam of the boat, beam reach. Uh, how many other ways could we look at the word beam? Uh, I got one for uh, B is for broad, which I'm guessing means something to do with a ship and not some 1950s uh, uh, word for a woman. Um, I got B is for barnacles, B is for bilges, um, B is for bowsprit. That was a very good option. Um, what I decided was uh, if we're going to do this alphabet a few times over, if there's enough content for that, then there may be multiple Bs in our collection in the end. Um, at some point, it's going to become apparent that we really do have to start with the most basic of Bs, which is boat. So the subject of this episode is to look at Bs for boats. Like, what exactly are these things, and where did they start, and what are the variations, and how have we got from where this all started out uh, to where we are now? Now, it became very apparent to me as soon as I started down this path that uh, <laughs> this could be very short if we're just going on what's inside my head when it comes to such a generic uh, subject matter. So I have got the Wikipedia page in front of me uh, for the word boat, so you can uh, read along there, but I'm not going to be uh, creating a, a script and kind of going through it that way. Let's just get into what they have to say, and then as always, I'll, uh, I'll carry that off into other things that I specifically know about. All right, so Wikipedia uh, starts out with the most generalized description that we can imagine. It says a boat is a watercraft of large range of types and sizes, but generally smaller than a ship. Okay, well, that, that kind of, that rings true for me. Certainly when I was in the Navy, uh, the description of ships and boats, as with a lot of things in the Navy, you had to be very specific. And the general uh, description we were given was that a boat fits on a ship, but a ship does not fit on a boat. So that kind of makes it nice and easy. Now, something to be said about ships. Um, back in the day, you know, the all these different uh, larger watercraft, let's put it that way, had different sailing rigs. And a ship is a particular kind of sailing rig. Um, you would have had barks, you'd have had brigs, you'd have had uh, ships, you would have had all sorts of different um, developments of the sailing rig. But at the end of the day, a fully rigged ship would have had three masts, it would have had four and a half sails between the masts, and the aftermast, the mizzen, would have had a four and a half sail set on that called a spanker. So you'd have something that kind of looks like a mainsail, but in this situation, it's kind of ancillary to what's going on at the back. And then you've got staysails between the mizzen and the main. You've got another set of staysails between the main and the uh, foremast. And then you've got a, head, a load of headsails forward of that. So that technically is what a ship is, a, a fully rigged ship. Um, a bark, again, and a, and a brig, they would have had different variations of sails, but the ship became so um, ubiquitous that in the end, the world just became synonymous with larger vessels. So a uh, fully rigged ship would have had boats on board, but uh, there's no fully rigged boats with ships on board, so that makes that nice and easy. Um, the thing that I wanted to get from the Wikipedia page is what really comes next under this, which is the history of the thing, because the history of, of boating goes back a very long way. And when you start to look at where do the earliest boats come from, 
it gets very interesting very, very quickly. So my understanding was that the earliest boats were uh, things which had been dug up in Holland. Um, I believe it's called the Pesse. Am I pronouncing that correctly? P E S S E, the Pesse canoe, found in the Netherlands. It's a dugout which was uh, built uh, about 8,000 years ago, um, between 8,200 and 7,600 BC. It's a very simple, hollowed out tree, um, not big not uh it's only two meters long and 40 centimeters wide and I, I dug a little bit further down into this and found that they had got what they refer as a canoeist <laughs> like that's a <laughs> that's a particular um profession you know i've done a lot of canoeing i've done uh, a lot of open water canoeing i've got a lot of cano- uh, qualifications in canoeing and kayaking but uh, i've never been like hired on as a as a as a, a canoeist but um they had somebody paddle this thing and to be absolutely honest the the uh, balancing skills of someone who's used to uh, racing k1s um you could probably you know balance on anything but um the person was able to paddle it but if you look at the actual pictures of the thing there has been some criticism that probably it was more like a water trough or something. I've got to say, they must have literally found like the first ever canoe because it has completely blunt ends and it has no rise at the front of it, no rise at the stern. It has no uh, widening in the center. Like even if you were going out just for your very, you know, you'd had this like amazing idea around the campfire, like you're, you're talking to your your, your amigos 7,000 years ago, you're like, hey, I'm thinking about crossing water. Like, uh, anybody got any ideas? And between you, you come up with the idea of make, getting a, a two meter long piece of wood and then hollowing it out slightly and trying to balance on it. Well, you better be born with a cat-like balance, otherwise you're not gonna stay upright. So I, I don't know if that's 100% correct. Um, the 7,000 uh, year old um, seagoing reed boats, which have been found in Kuwait, are very interesting. We'll kind of come back to that a little bit later on. They're kind of um, connected to some work done by Thor Herendahl. You'll know his name from uh, the Kontiki expedition and the Ra expedition, which was indeed a, a reed boat expedition. Uh, reed boats have been around for a long time. We have a lot of depictions of them. We have a lot of uh, very interesting evidence um, about reed boats being produced all over the world, but very interestingly in Easter Island, which I'll come back to later on. So that all puts everything around 7,000, 8,000 years ago. And then circumstantially, evidence has always been around for the fact that how did we colonize Australia if the if the the gig is supposedly that we all started in Africa and then we move out to the Fertile Crescent then we start to spread across um, you know Europe and out across Asia and then the land bridge between Asia and North America is still in place because water levels are much lower then it's possible to to get across um, from Asia into North America. So goes the spiel, which personally, I'm not sure is 100% correct. Um, So circumstantial evidence takes us back to 40,000 years ago, just from the fact of like, well, they must have got here somehow. Um, What's interesting is that you can dig a little bit further down by actually clicking on some of those um, uh, little reference things which are on every Wikipedia page and find out like, okay, where did this person actually get their information from? And there's uh, a little article in the uh, archaeology magazine, um, which is the uh, magazine which is put out by the uh, Archaeological Institute of America. Um, it's by Mark Rose, and it's just a kind of little kind of uh, synopsis of a, of a larger piece, which was in Nature magazine. And Nature magazines, you may or may not know, do not print anything which has not got pretty firm foundations in pretty uh, well-known science. 
And so what um, these uh, uh, researchers had found is that they started to look around at um, you know, different human distributions and, and migration patterns, and they started to realize that humans have been traveling to places that were not connected to uh, any other ports, parts of land for a very long time. I'll, I'll give you a case in point. There's two particular sites in um, in Indonesia uh, on the island of Flores, which is, is just slightly west of Timor. Um, so you're talking like the western coast of Western Australia, goes straight up in a line. You've got some big islands there from Indonesia. Um, further to the west would be Java. But uh, the uh, the two particular sites were called um, Tangi Talo and uh, Mata Menge. And in these two sites, they found some very interesting things. Pygmy stegodons, which is like a, a, a type of little elephant, um, giant tortoises, Komodo dragons. Um, and then in the area of Mata Menge, particularly, they found stone tools. And as soon as you get the stone tools in there, it makes more sense of what they're seeing. What they're seeing in Flores is early habitation by Homo erectus. Now that's slightly before we get to uh, modern, modern humans as we might uh, understand them. Uh, and the interesting thing, although these kind of bits of evidence have been found previously in Java, we know that Java has been on and off connected to uh, the, the mainland. And so it was possible for people to migrate to that area by, by walking there and carts and dragging things and all the rest of it, as you might imagine. Maybe not carts. Maybe maybe I'm putting <laughs> a little bit of Hollywood into that. They're probably just dragging stuff and walking. We, we don't really know. But what's very interesting is that Flores has not been connected to uh, the, the mainland for a very long time. Get this. The evidence in uh, Mata Menge is evidence of humans settled there 900,000 years ago. Well, uh, uh, certainly let's say a uh, an ancestor of humans but very very similar that you've got homo erectus crossing open water and going to flores for whatever was maybe going for the holidays i don't know probably for hunting and gathering isn't that what they always did that's nine hundred thousand years ago so nine hundred thousand years ago, how did they work this out they they analyze, it's very difficult to analyze stone and that kind of stuff. But as you know, you can analyze um, carbon-14 and we can look at the half-life as it decays of the carbon-14. But you can get some information from stone as well by um, analyzing individual zircon crystals within volcanic deposits. And at that point, you can get some kind of like broad ranges. So they have got a broad range here between 900 and 800,000 years old. <laughs> so there we go, pot pickers. Uh, our sport, our pastime is about <laughs> 900,000 years old. And you know what? That completely stands to reason for me because I think that I said earlier that I don't particularly agree with some of the information that we're given about uh, how quickly humans evolve and move. Now, I am, I will say right now, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not an anthropologist, but I am a person. And I do have my own personal experience of my life and of other humans that have been around me. And my observation is that if somebody's like really into something, they can push it a long way, like in one lifetime, even if you're talking about slightly shorter lifetimes. But, you know, we, we get caught up with the idea that prehistoric man, uh, you know, lived to 30 if you were lucky. What's more likely is that infant mortality, children unfortunately dying before the age of one, drags the overall statistics way down. So if you can get to like five, six, seven years old, something like that, then 
you're entering a population who, as far as we can see, didn't even have very much problems with their um, with their with their dental situation. You know, they were eating healthy, all this paleo diet and all that kind of stuff. The diet was there. There's definitely times where the world gets a lot colder and where um, food is a lot more scarce. But on the whole, um, peoples from you know. 7,000, 8,000, 40,000, all these kind of time periods that we're discussing, they had lifetimes which were probably cut short by accidents, by, uh, by maybe diseases that they, they get involved in, by, by hunting and by, by uh, uh, issues that uh, arrive in, in um, you know, violence between individuals. But there is a lot of evidence that um, human beings were able to live to quite uh, ripe ages. Now, why do I go into that? Because, you know, imagine by 15 years old, you've decided that you uh, really like going into the water. Okay, awesome. And then one day, you see somebody who's uh, like in a boat type thing, might be a coracle, might be a dugout, might be a reed boat. And you go, wow, that's the thing for me. Now, every single one of us who's interested in sailing has had that experience. Maybe it came early in life, maybe it came later in life. But then within the sum of years that are available to you, you then start to push that as far as you can so that you can uh, you know, get as much out of this thing as possible, like as much out of sailing, as much out of being on the water as possible. So I'm always very suspicious when they say, oh yeah, it would have taken 10,000 years for people to migrate from here to here. It's like, I don't know, maybe you need to get out amongst the hard skills people, because if you put an open stretch of water with the lofty peaks of a mountain just over the horizon, there will be somebody in the end who goes, I want to go over there. And it probably won't take you more than like one or two generations. So um, 900,000 years ago, somehow Homo erectus was getting from the islands of Java and from the mainland of Asia all the way down to Flores. Um, 40,000 years ago, we know that um, people were in Australia. Now, how do we know that? I can actually help you a little bit because, um, as you may know, my, my degree is linguistics and I, uh, I use most of my time at university to <laughs> basically be in the Royal Naval Reserve and do everything I could to pursue all that lot, which you know has worked out okay. But I was actually doing a degree in linguistics and I, I managed to retain a couple of details from it. And one of the things I remember is that they looked at... Um, uh, how old were the oral traditions in, in Australia? And by uh, taking stories, I think we mentioned this before, taking stories from oral tradition and tying them into known geological events like the impact of meteorites, they're able to tell that um, the stories of the Aboriginals, the, the uh, received oral tradition is at least 40,000 years old. Add to that uh, carbon-14 dating and you're starting to get a, a good constellation of information which points to when this people first came to Australia. So we say 40,000 years. So even at the most conservative guess, we can say seven or 8,000 years ago, people were getting out on the water. Um, a more kind of circumstantial guess is 40,000 years in Australia. But if we follow the, the logic as applied by the chaps there in Nature magazine, uh, we're looking at 900,000 years old. So if any of your golfing buddies are bragging about the age of golf, I would I would suggest just laughing inside. Don't laugh to their face because it's you know you know what golf people are like. Okay, different sorts of boats. Let's continue down the the Wikipedia page here. So as I think we all know, uh, recreational boats, pontoon boats, sailboats, houseboats, like everything's a boat now. Get out on the water in whatever way you can, and you're going to see 
all sorts of different people using all sorts of different boats in, in all sorts of different manners. But we could, we could say that there are human-powered boats, there are sail or wind-powered boats, and there are um, bo boats which move around under some kind of um, a motor, which might be gasoline, might be electric, might be diesel, or a combination of each. Boating has been an essential ingredient in the development of human trade routes and therefore has been a, a very essential part in the development of modern human culture. When do we start going out onto the water and starting to trade? Well, that probably happened in places like the Indus Valley and Mesopotamia. So you're right there in the, you know, just around Iraq, around that kind of part of the world, the fertile crescent between the Euphrates and the Tigris. And you've got uh, the, 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 um, Mediterranean to your west, you've got the Gulf of Arabia to your south, and then you've got the Indian Ocean to your east. This is a fantastic opportunity to go and get involved in commerce. And there's no real surprise that the first origins that we know of uh, development of human culture come from that area. The trading options were fantastic. To the, to the far west, they're going out as far as um, what we now see is like the Straits of Gibraltar. But remember that 10,800 years ago, uh, the Mediterranean was still uh, dry. We have a lot of evidence now from ice core samples, what have you, which indicates that sea levels rose about 400 feet 11,800 years ago, uh, making a massive change to the way that people lived. There are over 300 known underwater villages and settlements in the Mediterranean alone. Uh, a lot of um, people were surprised to hear, but now are happy with the fact that off the coast of uh, India, off the west coast of India there, bits of information were starting to come through from local fishermen 30 years ago, and then people like Graham Hancock went out there to start to dive on these. And they go from literally, um, you know, 25 meters off the coast to five or six kilometers out, going down to depths of a hundred odd feet, you've got big civilizations under, uh, well, there are rem remnants of big civilizations underwater. And that means that those places were on the coast at that time and they were trading with other areas. And obviously the map of the world looked very different. If you take the water out of the world and go down by 400 feet, you have a completely different layout to what was going on. So that the Indus Valley, uh, Mesopotamia, then the Sumerians, that whole area there, to the west, they had what would have been more kind of like a valley region inside of the Mediterranean. Later, that became flooded as the Atlantic came in through the, the what we now know as the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, and then to the west, you've got the Arabian Gulf, which again would have had a lot more civilization, a lot more cities. And remember that it was only five and a half thousand years ago that the Sahara was uh, a giant desert with, sorry, a giant desert. It is a giant desert. Five and a half thousand years ago, it was a, it was a, tropical kind of uh, oases. The, the overall average temperature was lower, rainfall was higher, there was a large river that ran from east to west across the Sahara. And so what we see as being North African quite arid would have been a trading area. What we see as being the Mediterranean Sea would have been lowlands which were for trading. Um, and there would have been rivers and there would have been the opportunity to, to trade between those different parts uh, of, of all those different civilizations. So the question is, what kind of boats did they have? And obviously, you know, the problem with boats back in the day is that unless those boats were deliberately buried by the civilization or unless something happened where they were covered over with mud and became fossilized or they fell into a peat bog, as we saw in uh, Holland, 
you're not going to get much remaining from from a boat. You know, if you think of your own boat, it's fiberglass. It's you know, it's it's going to last a long time, but in the end, it's going to break down, and all those metal components are going to break down, and the plastics that are the wiring and the coverings of the the, the seats and all that kind of stuff. That's all going to break down. Now, it might take your boat longer to break down, but ultimately your boat ends up in the same place that a wooden boat. If you leave a thousand years or 2000 years or 5,000 years, you know, is, is your J boat still going to be like available for people to go and have a look at? Probably not. Now, interestingly, what happens to fiberglass boats now at the end, end, end of their lives, having been around boat yards for long enough, I can tell you what happens is someone goes and puts a blade in a reciprocating saw and cuts your pride and joy into lots of pieces that go into a dumpster and then those pieces get taken out and chucked in the ground. That process that we engage in of, um, of burying boats may in the end create a very good uh, archaeological record for those that come in the future if they're willing to put all the pieces back together. But back in the day, what's going to happen to the boat? It's going to sink. It's going to get pulled up on the shore because it's no longer seaworthy in whatever. Um, and it's just going to rot away into the mangroves. The, the intertidal zone where waters are coming up and going down, as we all know, is a fantastic place for things to just just become earth again, just be, go back to the earth. So um, the little bits that we have of the maritime uh, record of, of boating going back, we we. I don't think we should take it as being that's all that they had. It's just that's what we've got. And what we've got is uh, evidence that they have uh, canoes. And the earlier canoes end up with a very flat kind of dugout style. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit the Mar uh, the Maritime Museum in Falmouth in the UK. Actually, I've been there a number of times. And um, they have there some, some dugout canoes and canoes made from timbers when they started to like fasten timbers together and what have you but the the thing we need to understand about boat construction going back i'm actually at the moment just started to get into restoring a dory a little uh, uh lunenburg dory very traditional vessel here but I, I learned a lot from reading the book that i got alongside this project called the dory book and it pointed out the fact that early sawing mechanisms were only able to produce very thin kind of stripling type pieces of wood. You'd be cutting a thin branch into thinner pieces. The technology that allowed us to cut wide boards and make, you know, big wooden uh, uh, construction pieces for ships, that didn't come along till much later on. And when it came along, when we were finally able to cut boards, which were, you know, five, six, seven, eight inches wide, whatever it was, um, that started to, to change the way that vessel design went in, in many ways because suddenly this um, resource was available, but it would only twist and turn in a certain manner. If you look at the rounded shape, a lap straight design or clinker built or whatever, um, you're looking at uh, boards which are only like two or three inches wide they would be of the style that would be cut early on from small bits of trees. Um, that was all that was available. You might be making boards by like literally taking an adze and flattening off one side of a branch and then flattening off the other side of the branch. What other options did you have? You didn't have a saw that could just cut through, you know, four or five inches of six, seven inches of wood and give you a board. So the rounded shape that we get now, uh, a lot of it's come from the fact that 
that's what they had available and they had to create something from it. The idea of steam bending things and, uh, uh, you know, that came later on. If you wanted a, a, a bent piece of wood, then you'd be looking for a, a bent piece of wood in nature and then you'd be cutting the sides off it and then calling that your, your frame or your breast hook or whatever it was. So the earliest boats that we see uh, evidence of are canoes and they might be dugout canoes they may be coracles where you've got some kind of uh, framework and you're are then putting animal skins over it there's some very interesting evidence um, in uh, Sumeria that they had some quite large coracle boats I was listening to a YouTube video the other day um, from the British Museum and they were talking about the fact that in the 90s this chap turned up with a, uh, a stone tablet uh, a cuneiform tablet the writing of sumeria um in amongst like a load of other junk that he had and they were able to kind of nobble him and and, and get this thing off him i don't think it happened right at the, that moment but he, he came back a couple of years later with this thing again and they were able to make a purchase from him but on that tablet what they realized immediately which is why they're interested in it is you had a five thousand year old version of the story of noah and the British Museum took that further and then went and built a coracle from these um, similar uh, materials using the uh, measurements which were on this cuneiform tablet and built themselves a giant round boat, um, which indeed could have carried a, a huge amount of, uh, of cargo, of livestock, um, but it was only good for kind of flowing down a river. Quite how you get it back up the river, I, I don't know. But um, trying to make it go at sea could have been very, very difficult. But the fact that on this cuneiform tablet 5,000 years ago, they have the dimensions and the general kind of building regimen for this, uh, for this boat is clear evidence that this was a, quite a normal thing for them. So there are always going to be limitations on what you can build based on the materials that you have at hand, the experience that you have, and the tools that you have with which to, to build. But how far could they get with with what they, they, they had to hand. Well, there's evidence in the Indus Valley civilizations, particularly um, in Kerala, which is uh, in southwestern India, that um, they had ships of up to 400 tons. Um, and the ancient Arabs and the Greeks uh, used this type of vessel for trading. Now, 400 ton ship, blimey, the first uh, ship that I worked on was a wooden ship. She was uh, teak and yakel, if I remember correctly, uh, yakel frame and teak, uh, teak hull. And she was 200 tons at 144 foot. So I know that there is an upper limit to how big you can build a wooden ship before it just becomes too subject to the movement of the ocean. That's about 300 feet. So I'm guessing, yeah, if they had a 400 ton ship, you may be in the 200, 230 foot kind of uh, uh, arena. Um, you know, these are pretty large vessels by any stretch of the imagination. Now, were they rowing them or were they sailing with them? Again, we have to look at um, what do we know about our own sailing? If, if I went out on a boat now, and obviously I've, my head is filled with all of the technology which has come in the intervening thousands of years, but if I was out and I was rowing a boat, um, it wouldn't take me too long to realize like, hang on, this is a bit of a fool's errand. We're going downwind here. Maybe I can get something and put it in the air using one of these oars and then, oh, now we're blowing along. You only have to spend an afternoon in a kayak with an umbrella going downwind and you very quickly get the idea of how sailing started. Um, if they were building 400 ton ships in the Indus Valley civilization, which is, you know, four or 5,000 years ago, um, how quickly could that evolve? 
it it has evolved um, on a pretty uh, understood basis, shall we say, from that point to today. My, my question would always be, why didn't it happen any earlier? I think that's one of the biggest issues I have with um, archaeology. You could say, well, it's based on, you know, you need to have increasing knowledge about um, leverage and tools and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I totally get it. But the problem is we have very, very little evidence to hand that we can point to and say, this is the evolution of this, um, this activity by humans. Pretty much everything which is uh, within the sphere of boat building is all subject to rotting away and being destroyed by the passage of time. The boats themselves, the places where the boats are made, the tools that are involved in it, everything is made of um, materials which will very quickly disappear. So we don't know, I think is one of the uh, elements that we have to add to all this. We have the interpretations of archaeologists and anthropologists who are able to put a lot of knowledge into this based on what they can find but we should be aware of the fact that of course they they've only found what they found right <laughs> and they've only been really like digging and looking properly for about 140 years so i'd imagine we still got a few things yet to learn but my, my instinct says that sailors being what they are as soon as you realize you can go at two knots you want to go at three knots as soon as you've got yourself a boat that's 18 foot long you want a 22 foot boat as long as you've got a you know <laughs> five lads working for your rowing then you want 10 lads working for your rowing like that's just kind of how it goes once you realize the principles and the scalability of what you're doing you very quickly get out in the woods and start looking for bigger trees to make bigger boats from now, the other thing we should uh, say here is about rafts. Um, papyrus rafts and, and reed-based rafts are something which are, have been found in Egypt. And we've talked before about the solar yacht, which was found, um, which is over 5,000 years old. Uh, that was a, a funerary boat, which was um, buried in Egypt, not too far from the Great Pyramid. Um, it was dug up, um, what, 1950s that was dug up? And we have got a lot of information about rope technology, about the, the forming of timbers, about design from looking at that. And one of the key elements that we can see for any uh, civilization that goes out onto the water is that they very quickly realize they have to construct some kind of bow. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are and what you're doing. If you're going to end up trading into some kind of open water, the development of the bow comes very, very quickly because without it, obviously we can all guess, um, you're going to be completely inundated, which is why for my own little expertise in, in this, I would say that the, the, the Passe uh, canoe in Holland there, um, just basically a log with a bit cut out of the middle of it, two meters long, 40 centimeters wide, totally bluff ends, just as you would imagine a log looks if you didn't do anything to it. Um, they can't have been going very far on that. I know that uh, Holland now, of course, is a, is a land of incredible inland waterways, but it was not always like that. I lived in Holland for a while, and the, the, the saying goes, uh, God created the world and the Dutch created Holland. Um, they made it from a low-lying land with the use of polders and windmills primarily uh, pumping water, not, um, not grinding uh, flowers, you may uh, think, if you've never put that thought in your head before they were pumping waters with, with the uh, with the windmills um, so you're looking at a very low-lying uh, salt 
marsh type environment which this uh, uh, log canoe would have been introduced into thousands of years ago the rivers that they would have had available then certainly would have been a way of doing commerce but even if you're starting to go up against the tide coming in from the river mouth um, you're immediately going to have a problem with that design of canoe uh, just a bluff bow on it and if you want to trade with anybody who's on the delta of your river which obviously deltas and estuaries are a fantastic place normally for agriculture and for humans to settle because you get all of the, the silt and sediment washed down the river, which makes for very um, uh, good uh, agricultural land often at the entrance to a river. Um, so I think, yeah, unless we literally have found like the first ever canoe, we're probably looking at like something else because with no bow in place, that tells me that that particular log, maybe it wasn't finished or whatever, but you know, the first day you take out your two meter long 40 centimeter wide uh, canoe log <laughs> you come back to your your starting point and go yeah we better like put a bit of a v on the bow of this thing because this is like trying to paddle a log you know well <laughs> so the uh the, the development of the bow is very important and we see that in a, in a somewhat stylized version um in the solar yacht in egypt you have these very raised bows but raised to the point of almost ridiculousness um again stylistically you know did the cars of the 1950s fly no but they had tail fins there was a stylistic choice the solar yacht was the same but some of the rafts that we see some of the reed rafts they they have quite useful looking bows and the construction of those rafts is still engaged in today and it's engaged in, in some very interesting places and this is where it comes back round to um, the book um, The Ra Expedition by Thor Herendahl which may actually be one I can read. I do have a copy of it here. It needs to literally be 70 years after it was published for me to be able to um, read it um, for the book to be in the open arena that uh, you know copyright is is on it in the public forum so to speak um, but if that's available that'd be a very interesting one um, it definitely combines my great uh, love of sailing and the water and ocean faring uh, uh, through through the millennia I've got a great interest in uh, in archaeology and um, the, the thing that Thor Herendahl did, which is very interesting, is that he looked at where those rafts were uh, in operation. If I remember correctly, obviously, reed rafts on the Nile, no problem at all. But then reed rafts on Lake Titicaca in South America? Hmm, kind of interesting. They just Now, what archaeologists always say in this situation is that like beavers all over the world make the same dam because when faced with the same problems, they come up with the same solution. Um, the theory supposedly goes that then when humans are faced with the same problem, they come up with the same solution, which kind of holds water. But I think that if you are getting into the details of how rafts are brought together and the particular cordage which is created and the knotting which is created and the exact style of everything, you get to a point where you're like, well, you know, all humans need to have somewhere to live, but we are clearly not all solving that problem in the same way because... I live in Nova Scotia and I've got a big garden and somebody else has got uh, an apartment and hates gardens and loves being up high. And somebody else again has got, uh, you know, an old uh, townhouse um, and brick and, and mortar and, and loving the raw iron railings out the front. And we've all got different ways of, of doing things um, as equally as we uh, do some things like running, jogging, kissing, whatever it is, you know, we do a lot of things similarly as well, but there's a lot of difference as well. And boat design, if you look across the market as it is now, 
boat design is something which is you know very much um, suited to your personal aesthetic and, and exactly what you're going to use it for. And so I would say that Yes, humans do do things uh, similarly when safe with the same problem, but they always impress themselves on it and a particular culture will impress themselves in a, in a particular way onto an activity. So it's very odd when you find um, reed uh, rafts in Lake Titicaca, which is in South America, and then you've got exactly the same rafts in Egypt. And then, <laughs> get this, they're also in Easter Island. <laughs> and Easter Island is a very interesting uh, uh, part of the world. If you don't know Easter Island, it's like slap bang in the, in the kind of lower, lower edge of the, of the South Pacific. Um, it's 3,000 kilometers from basically anywhere. And the origin story of the people that live there is that they came from far afield, um, but when they came, they came directly to Easter Island. It wasn't a case of the fact that they were, you know, they were looking for somewhere new to go and that people went out from their original island home and looked in all sorts of different directions. And then, no, no, their, their story of how they got to Easter Island is that they came directly there, which is almost impossible. <laughs> like, I know that they have all sorts of evidence uh, of, uh, you know, read. Uh, charts where you can get the sorry not, not reads you can get some um, palm fronds and overlay the palm fronds onto each other to to represent um, tidal uh, movement and currents and wave directions and you can put shells on and indicate where islands are and you can look that's fine I totally get that but an open water uh, transit of three thousand kilometers thousands of years ago in canoes with a a population who by their own creation story and their own arrival story says that they arrived with enough people to set up a community. Now, the rules go for human uh, communities. At a pinch, if you have to in a survival situation, you can get away with a base group of 50 people. But if you want long-term depth to your DNA pool, you're going to have to turn up with 500 people. So if we take their uh, original story as, as being fact, 500 of them set off from wherever it was they set off from and came straight to uh, Easter Island uh, where they set up a community. And Easter Island now is very barren, has almost no trees. It's the place, obviously, of the giant volcanic Moai, the, those um, black statues that are constantly looking up at the sky. Um, they have been, the island has been deforested by the actions supposedly of building the Moai over the last uh, couple of thousand years. But the original island is a gem, but it's a gem in the middle of nowhere. And they just happen to have exactly the same reed boats as the people in um, Lake Titicaca and the people in Egypt. I would say that you've got a little bit of a transmission of, of information. There. That's not to say that those different civilizations all interacted with each other. We have no evidence of that. But it could be evidence of the fact that they all got their inspiration from a common source, whatever that might be. To add just a little bit more uh, oil to the fire there... Uh, Thor Herendahl's um, assessment of the reeds, the actual reeds that these little rafts are made from, indicated that it was the same genus of reed in Easter Island, in, on Lake Titicaca and in Egypt, as though the reeds themselves, because they were so good for the task, had been moved from one place to another. So, I don't know, I put my hands in the air. That I think 
there is still a lot of latitude for us to reinterpret the information that we have about our past. I do feel that sailing and the uh, early mariners and the, the movement of people is one of the areas where we can get potentially the most circumstantial evidence because as soon as we know people were in a particular area, we can look at the ice records and we can work out where the sea levels were at and we can work out, okay, well, did they walk there or did they sail there? And if they sailed there, we can immediately start looking for evidence of boats. But as I say, what, what are we going to find? What we have found potentially in uh, Easter Island and Lake Titicaca is evidence of the same raw materials that they needed to make these rafts. They brought this, you know, it'd be pretty easy to bring some reeds with you. As long as you keep them in fresh water, you can travel a long way with them, put them in a new fresh water source. When you get to your new destination, you've got exactly the same raw material you had from home to build yourself a new uh, raft and the 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 subtext here of is this possible did this happen is the subject of the book uh, the rare expedition by thor herendahl and uh, i'll have a look at that it might be an excellent book for us to read after we finished um slocum and sailing alone around the world one thing to add about thor herendahl and his um his many uh, expeditions around the world and his ideas on uh, human migration um if you read things like the Contigi expedition or the Ra expedition, um, Thor Herendahl had a very clear idea of what he thought had happened in the South Pacific. He felt that people had left from South America and had moved out across the uh, Pacific Ocean on rafts. And that's, of course, what the Contiki expedition is about. That's a raft made from balsa logs, which they harvested themselves up in the um, up in the mountains. And he uh, managed to drift across the Pacific in a not unreasonable amount of time uh, as he got himself into what we now know as the Humboldt Current, which comes up the west coast of South America and then turns and goes out across the Pacific, just south of the equator, and dropped him off in, in great style, as we know, at the end of the Contiki expedition in, um, in Polynesia. Now, after Thor Herendahl did all of his work, which was like the 1950s, 1960s, uh, later evidence from DNA basically completely refuted all of his ideas. And the, everything that Thor Herendahl had um, projected basically came to, to nothing because DNA evidence said, oh, no, no, these people are not from, um, from South America. They're from somewhere completely different. They're from Asia. They came down through, through Asia this way. They didn't come across the, uh, across the Pacific. What's interesting is that in the last couple of years, we've now uh, got to a level of DNA testing, which is a much higher level than anything Thor Herendahl would have been able to be involved in. And it is now allowing us to see a lot more subtlety. What are the DNA markers um, which give us an indicator of a particular group of people's uh, heritage? Uh, within the South American jungles already, we know that there are um, peoples there. They have got Australian Aboriginal DNA markers in their genome. Now, the this has started to create a bit of a problem for archaeologists and anthropologists because there is no evidence at all that people were coming from Australia and then up through Asia over the Siberian-Alaskan uh, land bridges, which are still available to cross 10,800 years ago, and then making their way down through North America, through Central America, and to South America. Along their 
passage around that around the whole of the Pacific Ocean, they would have interacted with other people and would have left their DNA markers uh, in those communities as they went. So you should have a lot of Australian Aboriginal DNA markers all up through the the island groups and and through what is now you know Hong Kong, China, and Korea and the the Kamchatka Peninsula, and that you should see that there. The problem is they don't exist. So we have now some anomalies, which we're starting to become aware of, of peoples who have been displaced from one place to another, um, seemingly across the ocean, without any uh, knowledge on our part of exactly how they did it. And it, it is creating a bit of a problem, I can tell you, in, in archaeological circles. The, I think... I think the best way of putting it, I think, was put by um, yeah Graham Hancock. He was talking about the fact that upon examining the evidence, the DNA evidence, the the scientists, the biologists that were involved in the uh, the coding of the um, the genome of the people in the South American form forests, they said, well, our colleagues in marine archaeology are saying that people were not sailing, you know, ten thousand years ago when these people were first in this jungle, so. We don't know exactly how they got here, but the most parsimonious uh, explanation is that they came across the ocean. Now, when a scientist says parsimonious, they mean it's the most simple, obvious, and answers all of the uh, issues here. It's the it's the answer which kind of um, agrees with Occam's razor. So then, if you talk to the people from that area, as you know, the researchers have done, what do they say about their own origin? Well, those people have got a pretty interesting story to tell because what they say is that they were brought here by their gods uh, thousands of years ago and shown how everything worked in the forest and all the different plants and the trees and everything else. And then uh, we're basically told um, this is your new home and, uh, and we're off now. So do they have any details about how they were brought there? Well, they were supposedly their stories go, this is not me making up, this is their stories. They're saying um, they were brought there in a giant canoe with a helmsman who held no paddle. So I don't know what that exactly means, but what it could mean is that uh, uh, people who had not um, any experience of being on the water were transported from A to B for whatever reason, um, and they were transported within a machine, within a sailing vessel or some kind of human-powered, let's say, uh, uh, craft, which was able to move them thousands of miles across the Pacific um, in a way that they just did not understand. Now, all of this is passed down through human uh, oral tradition. But as we've seen in Australia, human oral traditions can, with you know, a lot of vagaries added in, they can record historical um, events 40,000 years ago. So trying to record something that happened 10,000 years ago maybe is not that difficult. Um, but, but who knows exactly what that adds up to? I, I, you know, I have no, no answer. But I will say this. If you, if you keep your ear to the ground and start listening, um, listening to people who have been uh, said to be sort of fringe generalists and fringe scientists and even pseudoscientists, as the word's been put out there, a lot of things which these people are saying are now starting to ring true with evidence that we're digging up. And again, as I always say, uh, you know, in North America until very recently, like within the last 20 years, the Clovis first 
uh, idea of people entering North America um, 14,000 years ago and entering South America 10,000 years ago, the, the Clovis first paradigm said there was nobody else there. It was a completely virgin uh, land. And yet now we're starting to see a lot of evidence that the human culture has been present in South America for a very long time. We've got domesticated crops, which we can find evidence of domesticated peppers and, and, and corn 9,000 years ago. So did they just rock up and start like uh, acing it from the very first moment? That seems somewhat counterintuitive. The, the reality in the last 20 years is that archaeologists have now started to dig deeper in North America and South America than they ever have before and have started to look for the traces of civilizations which predate the Clovis culture, um, which was um, up until this point said to be the earliest habitation in the Americas. If that's true, we have whole other chapters of history to, to learn about. And when we have evidence of um, people uh, on the island of Flores 900,000 years ago, are we really saying that 900,000 years ago they'd worked out how to cross open water and then they did nothing with that knowledge uh, for 890,000 years? And then in 10,000 years, we've gone from uh, reed boats to, well, you know, name, name your super yacht. Like we have come so far in supposedly such a short period of time. I think there's a lot of um, latitude to, to understand that we may have lost a lot of our maritime uh, history and, and don't really know exactly how boats started. We just know the most recent varieties of it and we only know it by digging up particular bits of evidence and then trying to interpret what we see. Rafts are something which probably you can imagine was the earliest part of, um, of, of being out in the water. There's in fact a kind of ant uh, on the Amazon River called a rafting ant and it's able to cross great floods, particularly at the, you know, the, the rainy season in the Amazon basin. As you can imagine, their nests get completely swamped by water. They have to find a way to survive. So what rafting ants, rafting ants do is they grab hold of each other's uh, legs and then they create this big raft with lots of air trapped between their, their legs. And then the ones that are on the bottom have a kind of bubble of air which they keep around their mandibles and they breathe that for a short period of time. Actually, that might, might be true. They have the air around their legs because don't insects breathe through their legs? Yeah, they do have air around them. It is around their mandibles, but it's the air around their legs, which is the most important. That's where they do their breathing. That's why when you put those um, uh, ant sprays and stuff on, uh, what you're essentially doing is you're asphyxiating them because the, the stuff you spray out the can uh, sticks to their body coatings and then they're unable to uh, to breathe properly. So there you go. Didn't know that, right? Um, so don't breathe it in is the other thing there. Um, but the, the rafting ant then, the, the ones that are on the underside have only got a period of time until they're going to need to breathe. But then the raft is constantly rotating. So those that are on the surface of the raft on the in the air are always in motion back towards the bottom and those that are on the bottom underwater are always in motion back towards the top so this kind of seething mass of ants is able to uh, find its way by drifting with the water from from wherever they were to something they can get a hold of it might be a tree or whatever it is until they can ride out that um that wet season so ancient humans had lots of evidence of like stuff floating around it wouldn't take too much inspiration for someone to observe that in nature, uh, observe the, the, the idea of rafting in nature. I've seen 
crabs sitting on pieces of wood in the middle of the ocean. I've seen birds sitting on coconuts. I've seen, I've seen enough stuff in my lifetime to have already realized like, oh, you could just get on something. And if you're on something, then you can go on the water. I don't think that would take too long for people to work out. Once we got out of rafts and got out of the more basic uh, craft that go onto the water, where did it go from then? Well, this is where we get more into the, the history of particularly um, the, the European uh, circuit. What was going on in Europe was really the development of uh, naval architecture in many ways. Um, for the last thousand years the Atlantic really has been the ocean around which most development was occurring you're talking about European uh, communities and countries and then obviously as soon as America was discovered or rediscovered or found or whatever you want to say um, it became a major industrial uh, development on the Atlantic the Pacific and the Indian Ocean had their own developments and because primarily we're going to be focused in our history that we're taught and that we're interested in and, and then things that occur in our language that we can look up and reference to a lot of it is going to be based around what happened at the atlantic but the the um the, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific both had very interesting uh, developments going on uh, throughout the period of time that, that, the, that the Europeans were developing their own uh, navies and marine craft and everything. Um, the, the problem came with when those worlds collided, the direction in which the Europeans had gone was a lot more aggressive and a lot more suited towards um, warfare. And obviously that was the deciding factor. Um, we think of Columbus setting out in 1492 and he managed to find America. Um, we don't know yet whether the Vikings made their way down into North America. Personally, I think they did. If they were as far afield as Iceland and Greenland, if you know your geography in the North Atlantic regions, the next island down is Newfoundland. Uh, Newfoundland is, you know, they call it the rock. The people that live there call it the rock. So th there's not much trees, there's not much going on. Amazing fishing. Like even back in the, the, the day uh, in the 1800s, there was huge amounts of cod around there. And obviously codfish is a fantastic resource, whatever age of man you're looking at. So think about it from the uh, Vikings point of view, they set off from uh, Scandinavian countries and they're using very basic navigation to pilot very basic ships. They had developed the, the bow. They got that big stem post timber, which we know kind of like came up into some kind of gargoyle type head, a dragon or a face or whatever it was. But primarily it was there to to shield the, the people inside the boat from, from the waves and to allow the boat to cut through the waves. Um, they'd be doing some rowing for sure, but they also had sails. We know that they had uh, masts and they had square sails and they were taking the tack of their square sail forwards and sheeting their, uh, the after tack uh, onto the um, stem post of the vessel. So they could go almost you know, relatively close up wind, like tall ship close up wind, like 55 uh, apparent wind angle up wind, something like that. Uh, true wind angle, God knows, because they didn't have much keel, but they could, they could cut relatively close to the wind for what they're doing. So if they picked the right season, they could start to make their way from uh, Scandinavia to Iceland to Greenland pretty regularly. Now, they come from a cold part of the world, but they know that if they go south, things get warmer. Remember, they were attacking to the south. If you think of like the, the hooligans and the vandals, which were uh, Germanic tribes, they were going south and becoming a problem for Rome. Now, Rome clearly is like 
olives and sandy beaches and you know beautiful area just as it is now so the vikings were not unaware of the fact that if they went south things get warmer and inside their own country they know if they go north things get colder now they can run lines of latitude across the atlantic relatively easily there's a very simple navigation method where you take a star with a known altitude um, you would set off at a particular time of year when the winds were fair and then you'd know that this particular star is going to go to x number of degrees above the horizon you make yourself a little chock of wood you put a little cutout in uh, the, the 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 bottom parts of this chock of wood and you put a hole in the top of it the star needs to be in the hole at the top and the little cutouts at the side need to line up with the horizon if you travel uh, every morning as the sun comes up you keep it at the same angle of the bow don't head towards it as you're going southwest but if you head towards um, the uh, keep a proper angle to that um, to that rising sun and then at night you can look at the um, angle of your piece of uh, sorry you can look at the angle of the star that you're looking at using a piece of wood you can look up at the sun maybe take shadow marks with a staff inside the boat that the sun must be at a constant height as you're going across there's some very crude basic factors which you can uh, note which allow you to run a line of latitude across uh, a, a piece of open water now the other thing that comes from this of course is the old thing of as the crow flies um, they would keep land birds on board the boat which then in the event that they thought they were getting close to land they could release a land bird and if the land bird saw land from its vantage point high up then it would head towards it and you'd know okay that's where the land is um, if it circled and came back to the boat uh, being the only thing it could land on then you knew there was no land in sight um, it's interesting again i'm not a religious person but when you look at some of the details in the bible which is as you said before one of the oldest texts in um in european and and western culture uh the or should I, no let me let me adjust that it's the oldest text in middle eastern culture and it has been adopted a lot by the west let's just make sure that's uh, understood i i when i was a kid uh, all of the images of jesus in my good news bible were of a white man that looked like he came from oxford but the fact of the matter is that if we are getting involved in uh, uh believing what is in the old testament then we must also completely accept where it came from and it is of course a story of the middle east and uh, and you know near north african parts of the world so just to clarify that but that that culture that christian culture comes to us with a couple of very interesting details in it such as as you know um after the great flood uh what does noah do he sends out a land bird and the land bird comes back with a twig and this is you know the beginning of the new covenant with 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 god the beginning of the new testament but interestingly it's actually a technical uh detail of the navigation of the time that you would send out these land birds and then if they came back with something i don't know like roosting material or something uh, or did not come back then you kind of knew where you were at so again a little evidence the fact that that um that uh diluvian myth which is so prevalent amongst so many cultures around the world of a great flood um may well have its roots in 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 the uh, stories of the rising of the seas 10,800 years ago which is a known fact the sea levels went up by 400 feet it would have felt like the whole world was being completely covered in in water to those people that lived at that time um, and to try and save themselves from it they would use whatever boat building skills they had i.e the cuneiform tablet from sumeria of a giant coracle that they could put everything into that they needed to um, and and then this detail of navigation of this bird coming back but 
And to talk about the, the Vikings, um, so they could run a line of, uh, of latitude very easily. And they knew that going north was colder and they knew that going south was warmer. So again, to get back to the idea of like, how quickly do things develop? If anybody says to me, the Vikings did not discover uh, North America, I think that goes against the flow for me of what I know about sailors. Like, you know, imagine you're a kid and you're growing up in the year X. I, sorry, I don't really know exactly what we're talking about here. Like, are we talking like 700, 800, 900 AD, something like that? So the, you're growing up and your dad's, uh, he goes away on boats and you're excited about it because all kids are excited about, you know, what their parents do or their caregivers do. So you're making little models of boat and you're floating them in the stream. And as your dad comes home and he tells you all about um, this navigation thing he does, and this is the star of it. You can imagine this, right? This is a real story. These are humans interacting. And then he's telling you, oh, we go to this place and it's got these amazing uh, ice formations and it's got these volcanoes. And oh my goodness, it's going to sound like just the best, right? But there's not really much going on there. So then we went further afield. We went to this other place, um, <laughs> which has got nothing going on there. Oh, man, I got to go to Greenland one day. I know nothing about it. But he, he tells them the story of Greenland. So you're like, okay, cool. And then what's the kid gonna say? He's gonna say, well, oh, what did you find after that? He's like, oh, we didn't find anything. We just came back. Like that doesn't really seem very likely to me. And if he did, the kid, as soon as the kid is gonna get into a boat when they're older, they go to Greenland and go, I'm gonna go and find out what's next. So they go further on. They find. Newfoundland. Now, Newfoundland is an island, so it doesn't matter if you sail to the north of it or to the south of it. In the end, you're going to go around it. And once you go around it, you've only got two options. You can go down the St. Lawrence Waterway, which is going to be a river flowing against you, or you can go down the coast of Nova Scotia. And once you get down the coast of Nova Scotia, oceanic um, tide patterns and current patterns have not changed very much in hundreds of thousands of years. So the Gulf Stream comes up to about 100 miles from where I'm sitting right now. And that Gulf Stream is at 21 degrees. So you wouldn't have to go very far south from your explorations in Newfoundland to end up in water, which is as warm as the, as the Mediterranean. And this codfish, this stock, this, this, this species that you can hunt for, they're everywhere. They used to say you could like literally walk ashore on them back in the day before we started fishing them to extinction. So as you go south, you realize, wow, it's really warm. And you realize, wow, there's loads of cod. And you realize, wow, you know, this is great. We have got this big tidal stream thing, which is lovely and warm, bringing all this uh, warm air up. It might be difficult for them to get further south. Like I totally, I totally get that. They'd have to really hug the coast and stay away from the, um, the uh, Gulf Stream. But most of the stuff they were doing was coastal anyway. The, the obvious choice is to get down the coast. And that little kid that grows up with stories of, we went to Greenland, he's the next captain that's going to take you to Newfoundland. And then his kids are going to be the captains that take you to Nova Scotia. And then that guy's kids are going to be the ones that take you. It's not going to take 10,000 years. It's going to take like four generations. First lot go to Greenland, second lot go to Iceland, third lot go to Newfoundland, fourth lot go to Nova Scotia, fifth lot <laughs> discover like Florida, you know? So I think the idea of how fast people move around the world and how important boats have been to it is, is still not certain in our minds. I think that's what we could say. I do try and keep my eye on the idea that we're talking about boats and the origin of boats here, not too much about the uh, distribution of humans. But, um, you know, well, you can't almost separate the two. That's the thing we've got to remember. As you step onto your boat down at the marina, you're engaging in an activity which humans have been engaged in for 900,000 years. <laughs> like, 
we haven't been writing that long like I wish we had. What have we done? Well, we've been making humans for that long, certainly. Uh, we've probably been making um, jewelry and clothing ourselves and hunting and fire. And, uh, and But the hunting would not be horseback and bows and arrows and stuff like that. It'd be endurance hunting with a sharp stick, you know, just trying to run animals down. So you're talking about this thing that we do. This is one of the basic, most prosaic things that humans do we try and get onto the water so yeah if people uh, think you're a bore about sailing you remind them hey this thing <laughs> it's nine hundred thousand years old so what else have we got to learn about boats that is b is meant to be for for boats isn't it i try try and stay vaguely on uh, on 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 task here um so if we look back at the Wikipedia page, it then goes into terminology. And obviously sailing, as we know, is an area filled with terminology. Um, it's one of the areas of human language which I think deserves all of its terminology. Personally, I try and steer clear of it. I've got to say as much as I can. Um, I, I've never been a member of a yacht club. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's essential to going boating, although I do recognize that the sense of community and the uh, accessibility to other other people's knowledge is uh, is something that's fantastic but all too often for me yacht clubs have been something where a lot of old really musty gruff sort of angry shouty old men hang out and and do nothing for the benefit of new sailors so i try and stay clear of it one of the things that really really grinds my gears is um people who are absolute pedants about um about terminology on a boat. If the terminology gets you closer to your objective, then it's very much required. I cannot imagine running a, a naval ship where people don't know bow from stern or one order from another. Obviously, clearly in that situation, you need to love, learn the terminology. But if you're on a vessel going out onto the water with your kids and they say, can I go to the front, dad? And you say, it's called the bow, you're a fool because it's not important. You, you're creating a wall which doesn't need to exist. Um, but the words which do uh, exist for us to be able to describe all the various elements of the boat are incredibly useful when you're talking to other people that speak the same language. But you know, I wouldn't expect someone who's a professional um, coder to come home and keep talking in code when they get home. Um, I don't know if that's possible, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not required. Like we're just going out to have fun, right? Unless it's a bit starting to create a limitation in what's going on, it shouldn't be something that's too much um, worried about. Um, terminology that it goes through here is like lifelines and bulkheads and all that kind of stuff. But I'm gonna drag, drag things over to somewhere that's more important for me to look, which is um, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> now you may remember that the first film was very, very good. Uh, and I think took us all by surprise. It's a, it's a story which I think, maybe I've told this one before, but I was, um, I was in Korea working as a teacher. I, I was there 2003 or something and, and I was enjoying it. I was getting paid well and I was doing all these lectures and my, my degree kind of related to what was going on and I was really enjoying it. And then I went to see Pirates of the Caribbean and by the end of the film, I decided that I didn't want to be a teacher anymore and I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a pirate basically. And, um, the rest of my career ensued, give or take. But the the one quote out of that, which does, you know, kind of connect somewhat to our terminology discussion here, is um, this one from, from Jack Sparrow. And he says, um, that's what a ship is, you know. It's not just a keel and a hull and a deck and sails. That's what a ship needs. But what a ship is, is freedom. 
And I think that's the thing that has always brought humans down to the sea, because whatever your situation, whatever's going on in your social group, whatever's the, the politic of the day, whatever's your debt or credit situation, whatever's going on in your life, going out on a boat is an opportunity to sample instantly freedom. We go this way, we go that way, we go back, we go on, we keep going, we stop, we, we, uh, we blow this way, we blow that way. But whatever you're getting involved in, um, it's just you and the ocean. And terminology at that point becomes unimportant. And uh, yeah, there's a huge amount of language which surrounds the, the building of boats and the operation of uh, ships and all the rest of it. But um, this uh, little entry here in the uh, Wikipedia page for boats, I think they could, um, they just want to throw that one away. <laughs> just throw that away. All right, then what else we got going on here? I'm just, I'm just trying to keep what I'm doing based around what's on the Wikipedia page, else I'm, I'm somewhat want to roam. Um, building materials, well, until the mid-19th century, it says most boats and, of course, ships were made with natural materials, primarily wood. Now, that's pretty obvious. I did allude a little bit earlier to the fact that, you know, ship design, boat design has developed through the ages. Um, and a lot of it has been limited to begin with by the size of the materials which could be brought to bear. I've been learning about a building this Grand Banks dory that I'm involved in. Now. I'm actually repairing one that I, I bought and uh, and finding out that, yeah, these wider boards were, were a real treat for the, for boat builders because they didn't have to then deal with all these tiny little things that forever trying to spring uh, seams whenever they possibly could and required so much corking. Suddenly you can use wide planks. But materials obviously have come from like... Um, reeds and animal skins and things that really were like just one step away from falling in pieces to like thinner pieces of wood and then wider pieces of wood and then thicker pieces of wood which are bent into shape and make a much stronger ship and then we got a keel in there because we got to hold all those pieces together and oh who knew the keel can actually give you lateral resistance and things start to develop very quickly up until the uh, mid-19th century, all vessels were made of wood, but the design had started to kind of like get better and better. Now, what was the, it was like the front of the boat needed to be bluff like a codfish. And was it the back of it needed to be shaped like a mackerel or something like that? I think it was. There were, it was ways in which they were trying to visualize how best to get the boat to ply through the water. Um, but all of it, whatever, I know it was bluff as a bluff in the bow, like a, a, a codfish, but I can't remember what the table was at the back. I think it was a mackerel. Um, but whatever it was, the, the real development for, for vessels, sailing vessels, boats, ships, is when they start to realize about the keel. And when they start to realize about the keel, things suddenly start to get very, very interesting. Once you have a keel, you can suddenly start to uh, go upwind. Going upwind is something which is very, very important in the development of uh, commerce and sailing because before you're able to go upwind, you, you are constantly being pushed downwind by things. And if you want to go upwind, you better find a current that's going to take you there. A lot of the trade routes out of Europe are actually formed by by the prevailing currents and winds. If you look at something like the Trans-Jacques Varp, a modern uh, race for, for modern boats, its origins, now not in a direct line, it has no direct um, uh, ancestry back to those days, but it is based on the trading routes of the day. If you look at something like the Ark, the Atlantic Rally for Cruises, again, going from the Canaries to the Caribbean, if you look at the Rourke Transat race, they're all going down these same 
ways because they're going down the way that the currents move and the way that the winds move. A lot of ports were developed by um, finding places where you had docking winds. I lived in Fremantle in Western Australia and you've got the Fremantle doctor comes in. It's a, they, they've changed it from docker to doctor because it's... I think it's a kind of wind which cools you down and makes you feel better like a doctor might. But it's a wind which um, blows in and blows, uh, blows ships to their, to their moorings ready to trade. See, if you're sending out on a trading expedition to, I don't know, you're going to China, something like that, and you're going to pick up, it doesn't matter like when you leave, you leave on the tide and you leave whenever. And what these ships would have is either pulling boats, which would be able to pull the ship to the uh, new position to uh, at the mouth of the estuary ready to, to sail away or you'd have dolphin posts which would be big inserted posts into the riverbed which you could then send out a longboat and tie uh, a, a line tie a warp onto that post and then pull it in using the anchor capstan and then have another longboat going out with another one so using the two fair leads the two horse pipes at the front of the ship you could pull first on one post and then on the other post and you could pull the ship out of port that's all great getting off to go and do your trading is yeah leave whenever you want the big question was when are you going to get back because getting back was then a key indicator of whoever brought the merchandise to market first could get the highest price if you're bringing back nutmeg and cinnamon and tea and silk and all that kind of stuff the first to market is the one that's got the highest price as soon as the market starts to flood with supplies of course demand drops and the price drops so ports that had docking winds were incredibly important so not only did trade routes develop around the way that the currents and the um the, the wind blew but it also developed into ports which had favorable natural circumstances to be able to get the ships in and out once we started learning how to go up wind then all bets are off. Then suddenly ships could go to windward. But you know, you look at like how many ships are wrecked back in the day. That is not just a function of their bad navigation. It's a function of the fact there was no particular way of getting the ship off the off the uh, the, the reef or off the uh, the shallows or off the rocks or whatever it was. If you start getting blown ashore and you have a shore behind you which is too leeward of you and is um is a, is a potential threat to you. You can't do much to get off it in an old style ship. There was no lateral resistance in the in the hull of the ship. There was no particularly developed keel. You had the keelson and the deadwood underneath the vessel and the horn timbers and all the rest of it, which is kind of what you'd think of a traditional vessel with this big timber running down the bottom. Great to run it aground on, great to stand it on in dry dock. Um, but it did have a little bit of lateral resistance into it, but not much. And you had mostly square sails. So if you were trying to get off a lee shore, you could do everything you wanted to do, but the wind's just going to push you sideways. And they had no particular way of tacking then. Remember, these ships are only going forwards at like five, six knots, something like that, in a heavy sea, four knots. There wasn't enough way on them to, to come up to the wind and pass through the eye of the wind and get going on the other side. So they would come up into the wind and they'd reverse all their sails, essentially. They'd get blown backwards. They'd be aback and they would back down with the helm over the opposite way until they were pointing in the new direction. So first you're heading west, and then you turn up into the wind, turn to a north direction. You get pushed backwards towards the south, but you have the helm over, so the stern of the ship goes out to the west again, and after a couple of minutes, the bow is pointing to the east, and off you go again. This is called box hauling. So to get the ship away from a lee shore, your options were to wear ship, which is to like jibe basically, head towards the shore and then head off in the new direction, or try and box haul off. All of which, of course, was very, very... <laughs> 
unlikely to help you get off a lee shore in a heavy condition. So once vessels started to develop uh, keels, then suddenly we start to get into um, vessels which had the ability to actually do their trade upwind and down. That period when that started to happen is like the late 1800s. And if you remember when we did the interview with uh, Phil Backman a couple uh, couple episodes ago, he was a traditional um, boat builder out of um, Buzzards Bay in, uh, in the Long Island Sound there. And uh, he was telling us a little bit about a racing dinghy from the late 1800s, which had not only a keel, but also had a bulb on the bottom of the keel, like an early tea keel. Like things were starting to develop, but that's literally the earliest keel and, and bulb that I've heard of. And that was, it was just at the end of the 1800s. So traditional materials were all natural until we get to the, to the um, early 1900s and the design of the vessel hadn't really gone very well. Uh, hadn't gone really gone anywhere until the early 1900s and then suddenly we start to get the change in vessels which um, really is the the start of the new modern era and a couple of different things happen now, I was lucky enough to be the captain of a vessel called Mary Maid uh, 10 years ago now and she is a very important vessel because she marks uh, the crossover between all natural construction with all all wood going to uh, steel frames and wood and she shares that uh, construction style with two other vessels in the UK which you know has some of the oldest uh, ships in the world and uh, the, the other two vessels are the Cutty Sark which of course you'll have heard of one of the great tea clippers that um, uh, is now immortalized on uh, bottles of whiskey and you can go and visit it in Greenwich and uh, it's, a, it's a famous uh, vessel um, you know if you even know a little bit about sailing you know about the Cutty Sark but her sister ship is called the Spirit of Adelaide. She was later called the Carrick, and I was involved in a project in the early 2000s to get the Spirit of Adelaide saved and hopefully brought back to a um, operational condition, although you know many millions of uh, pounds required for that. But the 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 Cutty Sark was fast and she was strong and she delivered her cargo and all those things. But why she's actually so important to the historical record? Why she's rated A one of only a couple vessels so rated in the UK small ships or UK historical ships register rather, um, is because she has metal frames and wooden hull planking. And that's exactly what Merry Maid had. Merry Maid was built for the 1904 Lipton Cup. And back in the day, Merry Maid would have been a very kind of rude and risque name as it basically means kind of hooker or something, you know. But she, was, uh, she won the Lipton Cup with this design. What's interesting is that while she encapsulates that part of historical uh, importance for, for, for marine history is that she was also the first vessel ever to put a Marconi rig up. And that's another point at which things start to really accelerate forward for sailing vessels. Once we have Marconi rig, which is invented by Guglielmo Marconi, who was the first guy ever to um, send a wireless telegraphy message in 1904 as well, the Marconi rig was his answer to how to stand up a, a, a tower, a transmitter tower in built up areas like trying to put one up in a city he realized that for his system to be uh useful they're probably going to be putting these rigs on uh, these these telegraph uh no transmitter rigs up on top of buildings so he but he invented the marconi panel rig so suddenly rigs could go higher they could have more internal um 
uh, uh, tension to give them shape. Um, you could start to do tricks like bending the rig. You could start to do all sorts of things completely different from what had been the, the name of the game previously with tall ships. And, you know, if you look at the most modern uh, designs up until that point, you've got basically like bold headed rigs, which would be where your rigging came up and then left a couple of feet of the rig clear at the top with that nice white top on it, um, which incidentally is where the name of the bald-headed eagle comes from, right? Bald-headed eagles do not have bald heads, which uh, I, I thought for quite a long time as a child. And it was only a couple of years ago, probably I found out where it came from. A, a very um, famous style of rigging, uh, of, of rigging a ship, was to leave it bald-headed, which was to leave the, the top couple of feet of it uh, white so that the, the mast extended beyond the truck and uh, and gave it a nice aesthetic appeal. And you could put a mast up there. Sorry, you put a little flagpole up there and put your house pennant on it. Um, it gave it a better uh, aesthetic because the rigging came up and joined the mast with a big kind of clunky connections there. And then it tapered out to this thin, beautiful uh, white tip on the top of it. So when the bold-headed eagle became uh, known to, to Westerners who also knew about that rig, its black body and white head looked like a bald-headed rig. So um, up until the Marconi rig, that was about as good as you got. And that kind of rigging persisted for a long time afterwards. But with the Marconi rig uh, came the development of the Bermudan sail with the triangular top to it. And we could get into a lot of aerodynamics here, but basically the, the, the top of the sail at that time was a you know, probably had a big wooden yard on it. There was a lot of weight up in the air. Um, that much weight aloft required there to be uh, quite a lot of weight in the boat. And it wasn't particularly on a keel. It was just in the hull itself. And uh, the developer Marconi rig started to, people started to realize, let's get things lighter and lighter and lighter as we can further and further up in the air. And the, the top of sails, whether you are um, racing or cruising, the, 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 the structure of the top of the sail is very important because you get a lot of induced drag from, uh, from eddies which are set up by wind exiting the top of your sail. And it's interesting to see that modern sails have now started to become a lot closer to what we would think of as a traditional sail. In fact, the big sprit batten, which holds the square top main out in shape, is known as the gaff batten. It's, it's, we are looking at a development a closer development for the modern square top mainsail would be actually um, something like a Chinese junk rig or something like a, a, a more modern gaff rig in the 1900s with its little jack staysail in between. That's what you're looking at, right? But now we've just kind of got it modernized with fiberglass or carbon battens and whatever's your choice of sail material. But you're looking at a much older sail design. In between, we had the Bermudan sail, which gave us a, the, the, the stepping stone that we needed as we were learning about um, uh, aerodynamics. And it was, it was really only the 90s when we had computers that could accurately uh, calculate airflow across a sail. Really, if you, if you don't have to go very far back in books to get to a point in the early 90s where they describe how sails work in a way which is fundamentally incorrect. Um, maybe that's a <laughs> maybe that's a content for another another day. But um, a lot of how people understood sales to work, the the slot effect and venturis and all that kind of stuff, a lot of that now has been shown to be uh, a fraction of what's going on and, and not the true story whatsoever. So the Marconi rig turns up, the Bermudan sail turns up. The um, suddenly we've got hulls which have got keels on them, and suddenly boats can go to windward. And then we are not so penned in by um, what's happening with the, the currents and the prevailing winds and what have you. Obviously, still going upwind is a, is a hard yakka, but um, at least you've got the option. And it makes things a lot more safe. But 
at the same kind of time. We've obviously had the Industrial Revolution. Iron is available. We get the beginnings of the uh, internal combustion gasoline engine initially, which then went into boats. And very quickly, people realized, oh, hang on, we don't even need to worry about like docking winds or anything else now or dolphin posts to get out of port. We can just use this auxiliary engine to get in and out. So the development of the boat as we know it really goes from about a thousand uh ce thousand you know what we call it now we're we calling it ce or ad i don't i don't even know like <laughs> our calendar 1000 whatever that is um the, uh, about you know a thousand years ago um vessels were still pretty much um what we had always had those indus valley civilizations thousands of years ago had 400 ton ships were they paddling them? Were they sailing them? We don't really know yet. Hopefully we'll find some evidence later on that will give us a, a broader idea. They were trading between points that were quite far apart. As we've seen at Easter Island and Australia, they were covering large distances. As we've seen at Flores, the very origins of this thing could be 900,000 years ago. So in 900,000 years, right up until 1000 CE, um, we were doing basically the same thing, give or take. And then in 1000 years, we have gone from um, hemp and manila ropes and lignum vitae blocks and ships that slid sideways and didn't go where you wanted them to go and you know four knots with 70 people on board and all that stuff all suddenly started to giddy up and go um, from about 1600, something like that, 1600, 1700. You'd actually need to look more accurately at um, the uh, military development of vessels because, that, of course, that's the thing that, um, that pushed things on. Okay, let's have a look at the uh, last couple bits here, which I pulled out of this as I was going along, uh, which kind of uh, surprised me a little bit. I did not know about um, ferro cement and uh, how old that is. The, um, the 1855 is the beginning of uh, the, the French uh, termed it ferry cement or fer cement. That's my best French accent for that one. But what we now call ferro-cement, where you've got this um, armature of, uh, of iron, uh, iron latticework, um, built uh, into this concrete construction, of course, using the principle of displacement. As long as you can displace a greater amount of water than the, uh, the mass of the material that you're building it from, you will end up with some kind of boat. It's not actually that hard to build a boat out of stuff. But... Um, building it out of concrete and iron. I'm sure there must have been a few raised eyebrows on that one. Uh, unfortunately, in the 1970s, um, boats built of um, ferrous cement in people's backyards using like dug out holes as the uh, female mold uh, tended to have very low uh, reliability and survivability. They tend to be very heavy, although they can be very well insulated, very quiet, and if they're built correctly, can um, be very easy to maintain. So uh, an unusual process, but um, perhaps good if you're gonna build yourself kind of like a, an apocalypse boat that's gotta go through everything. Obviously steel plate firstly was, uh, was all riveted together, um, and those rivets were extremely strong and they didn't really have that much of a, a, a failure issue. It was just later on welding them became a lot more easy. I was uh, listening to something about the construction of the Empire State Building, which of course all of the, the, the metal work that went into that was, uh, was all riveted together. And they were saying that um, there was only 
two people that died during the construction of that, despite the fact that, you know, they were walking on these beams like hundreds of feet up in the air. Um, and they were, uh, the, the two deaths were, I think one guy was knocked off by something in motion and the other guy had a heart attack. So, you know, not very much uh, danger of dying on the work site, but the, the dangerous place to be was on the street below. Because what they used to do is heat up the rivets in a brazier and then they would throw them to each other and use baseball mitts to catch them, to position them, to then uh, to hammer them into position on these two big hammers on either side, boom, 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 until the, it was peened over and made the, uh, the, the riveted uh, joint. But um, in the street below, <laughs> all of the uh, rivets, which probably weighed like a couple of pound each, that did not make it into the catching mitt of the, uh, of the, of the riveter, um, would end up on the street below. So uh, riveting was something which went on for a, a long time, um, but then obviously into welded construction later. Um, we've got all sorts of materials that we can build uh, vessels out of. Obviously things like core 10 steel and that are a fantastic option for boats because they will take on a little bit of surface rust and obviously core 10 steel is often used for um, aesthetic elements within um, building design where you want that kind of rusted look, but you don't want it to rust away. Um, other than that, it's aluminum and obviously, or aluminium, sorry for European listeners. Um, aluminum is something which has gained widespread uh, popularity around the world now. At the beginning, getting aluminum out of the ground was very difficult. Now it's uh, something which obviously we're, we're very, very uh, proficient at. And aluminum bolts are an excellent option, very strong, very light. The only issue, of course, being the fact that if you end up with another uh, metal of a different nobility uh, sitting on the aluminum in salt water, like uh, an iron washer in the bilge, um, if that is not taken care of, uh, you can end up with a hole in your boat. So you'll always see the aluminum boats with the anodes hanging over the sides so that those zinc anodes are giving sacrificial protection rather than the rather than the hull itself uh, degrading. So um, we have been developing our materials more and more until we get to the modern day, which is an area which obviously I'm a little bit uh, au fait with. They did start out using uh, fiberglass in the 1970s and a lot of those 1970s fiberglass boats, glass reinforced plastic or glass reinforced resin, um, the composite uh, structure which we're used to today in the 1970s done first and probably done in, some would say in its best ever option. Some of those 1970s boats are nearly indestructible, often with a foam or balsa interior to that layup so extra lightness. That developed on in racing boats to Kevlar boats, of which I own two, I think, um, which have got uh, Kevlar as the composite material in the hull. Um, extremely strong. The issue with Kevlar is always that if a boat's not well maintained, it's not looked after, um, and people are not understanding of the material, uh, water is a natural plasticizer for uh, Kevlar. At a molecular level, the hydrogen in the water starts to mix with the oxygen in the Kevlar, and the oxygen in the water starts to mix with the hydrogen in the Kevlar, and it starts to plasticize the Kevlar and, and remove some of its um, structural abilities and left too long, obviously, that's when you get into real issues with it. So it did a, a period through the 1990s uh, where it was a very common um, product uh, to be building boats from. That kind of has somewhat gone out of favor now, although I do see that Southern Wind still builds all of its bows out of Kevlar because they want them to be as strong as possible. But the thing which we're using today obviously is carbon fiber and carbon fiber has incredible um, strength uh, characteristics if if used in the correct manner. Um, we see it in Formula One and Indy cars able to resist enormous impacts and yet 
if I dent my carbon boat up against the dock, I've suddenly got a uh, nice little wedge-shaped uh, pocket in the side of it that needs to be dealt with. So it's strong in the ways that it needs to be strong for what we're doing, and it's very, very delicate um, in other ways. So amongst those materials now, we have this fantastic opportunity to pick and choose what we want for what we're doing. Traditional wood and an all-natural construction, steel and aluminum, if that's something that uh, may be going into the ice at high latitudes, lighter high modulus materials like Kevlar and carbon fiber for, for offshore racing boats that need to be as light as possible. And obviously these have these materials are spread into the, the rigging as well. Um, we've now got synthetic fibers which are able to hold up carbon fiber masks. So everything above is much lighter, leading to much greater power to weight ratios in, in modern boats or go for the aluminum mast, or go for the wooden mast if that's uh, what uh, fits in with your, your ideology and the way that you want to go onto the water. But we are in a world now where there's huge amounts of, uh, of opportunity. And yet it's very interesting, I think, to see that uh, some peoples of the world uh, still will choose the vessels which have been their traditional vessels. And we should may maybe bear that in mind as we start to look further into the history of sailing and, and marine archaeology, because because we find a boat uh, and we can carbon date it uh, to a particular period, it doesn't mean that that boat was the most advanced boat that was available at that time. It's possible that, um, I don't know, some wrecked steamship with massively thick uh, plating uh, might might survive in some form for a thousand years in some like crazy, you know, say like the Aral Sea, which is now a desert. The ships that are there are going to degrade at a very slow rate because they're up and high and dry in the desert. Uh, meanwhile, carbon, aluminum, composite hulls, all this other stuff. Now, if you come as an archaeology archaeologist many years on and start digging things up and you find one of those ships, do you then say, well, that was the most advanced vessel that was available in the 2000s? Well, of course not. It's just you found one that, that, that managed to make its way through. So I think we've still got a lot more to learn about the history of boats and boating and where it came from and, and um, this, this whole sphere of human endeavor that, uh, that we are part of. And that's, I think... That's the thing to take down to your boat. That's the thing I take down to my boats when I go out onto the ocean. You have to remember that you're engaged in an activity which humans have been um, involved in for as far as archaeologists can tell us at the moment, 900,000 years. So apart from stuff and food in your face and walking to work and kissing loved ones and farting, like there's not many other things that humans do that are that old. And yet here we are and we go down to the sea and we get this weird joy from doing it, this freedom, as Jack Sparrow said. Um, is it not fitting to think that previous incarnations of, our, of ourselves, our ancestors, with the same, you know, uh, grey matter available, the same... Um, are, we saying that, are we saying that people from 10,000 years ago uh, did not have the same capacity for intelligence that we have no what we're saying is that they did not advance very far so they would have instinctual uh knowledge and they'd have particular skill sets that came easily to them but they didn't have the broad range of science and technology and materials that we do now are we saying that they didn't have the same passions and the same excitements and the same sense of freedom and the the thrill of the spray over the back like of course they did get a grip of course they did 
And he was saying that they then wouldn't try and take that as far as they could. Of course they would. It meant more to them than it meant to us. So as you go down to the marina and you look at the far side of the lake or you look at that island, just that's what people have been thinking for 900,000 years. So I don't know if that is a, a good go of what B for boat is. I think it's a pretty good uh, <laughs> variation of what's on the Wikipedia page. Obviously, they'd need to put a few more... Uh, lines in if they were going to fill all that out. But um, if we can get one thing from this, we can say that the, the origins of, uh, of, of being mariners, of being out on the water are deeply rooted in the history of our species, have been incredibly important for the development of our technology and our industry and our materials and, uh, and our commerce and communities. And, um, you know, we are, we are not alone in feeling excited to go onto the water as each of us does. Good. Well, I hope that's uh, kept, you, uh, kept you out of trouble for an hour and a half. Um, we're getting back up to speed now with these uh, podcasts after a little uh, gap there. I had uh, a few other things I needed to concentrate on, but uh, i never sad to see an email come in from one of the podcast listeners and give me some information. I do realize that the one that went out a couple of days ago, there was an error on the file and the first 30 minutes were silent. So if you uh, found that when you went to that, um, that episode, Go back and give it another click and re-download it and you'll find that it's all back as it should be now. That's another couple of chapters of Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World. And if you did listen to that one, it is the 15th of April today. And uh, that is the day that he was first out of the Straits of Magellan, having successfully, for the second time, beat around the Cape Horn in 1895. Um, 126 years ago, he was standing there with the whole of the Pacific ahead of him and the hard work of Cape Horn done. And um, yeah, uh, our history, whether it be 126 years ago or 7,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago or 900,000 years ago, it's all the same thing. We're all striving for whatever it is that um, boating means to you. Good. Okay, well, I shall get on and uh, get this one out to you so you can listen to it. And uh, as always, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound in these still strange times. Look after those who are around you and I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.